Only thing unplugged is Forgotten Seasons. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Forgotten Seasons. This is your host, Dylan Dreyfus. Today, we have a fascinating interview. A guy that was one of the first players I thought of when I started Forgotten Seasons. Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, a transcendent talent that became the face of one of the biggest social justice stories in sports history. Most of you are probably familiar with Abdul-Rauf's story, but for those of you who aren't, here's a little backstory before we get into the interview. Abdul-Rauf was one of the most prolific college players of all time. In his two seasons at LSU in the late 80s, he averaged nearly 30 points per game and shot seven threes per game at a near 40% clip. Those numbers and that play style is something that just wasn't happening in the late 80s. He was teammates with Shaq during his sophomore season, and Abdul-Rauf, standing at just over six feet tall, was the biggest star on the team. That should tell you enough about just how good Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf was. His NBA career began in 1990 as the third overall pick in the draft to the Denver Nuggets, but the situation that he walked into was pretty horrible. Denver had a new coach by the name of Paul Westhead, who I think is one of the worst coaches in NBA history. As soon as he gets there, he makes it very clear that his mission is not really to win games, but rather he wants to be the first team to score 200 points in an NBA game. He spent two years as head coach of the Nuggets, which were also Abdul-Rauf's first two seasons in the league. Over those two seasons, the Nuggets went 44-120. and 120. In 1991, Denver allowed 130.8 points per game, a record that still stands today as the worst defensive season of all time. No other team has particularly come close to even sniffing 130.8 points per game. And to make matters worse, Westhead wasn't really playing Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, the guy that Denver drafted third overall to be the future of their franchise. Instead, Westhead played a guy named Michael Adams ahead of Abdul-Rauf. I want you to go look at Michael Adams' basketball reference page because it's one of just the craziest things you'll see. It makes no sense. So after Westhead's two years in Denver, he gets canned and in comes Dan Issel, a Hall of Fame player and Nuggets great in his own right. One of his first moves is to fully give Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf the keys. He responds by winning Most Improved Player in 1993 and helps the Nuggets make two consecutive playoff appearances in 94 and 95. But in 1996, controversy hits. Abdul-Rauf is in the midst of one of the best seasons of his career. He's averaging 20 points per game, 7 assists per game, shooting nearly 40% from deep. The Nuggets are playing good ball. They've got a young team. But during that season, Abdul-Rauf also stopped standing for the national anthem before games. It's a very similar story to what happened with Colin Kaepernick more recently in the NFL. Huge public backlash. The front office doesn't stick by him. Days after the 96 season ends, Abdul-Rauf is shipped out of Denver and to Sacramento. And just a few years after that, his NBA career is effectively over. So that is the very abbreviated version of the story of Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf. We hit on his entire NBA journey in this interview. From the dog days in Denver, to a historic playoff upset in 1994, to his final days in the NBA. So let's get into the interview now. Real quick, his audio is not the best at times. I do apologize for that. One more thing, I'm also going to be dropping a bonus episode after this where I dive deeper into the collapse of the Nuggets following Abdul Roof's exit. That's going to be titled Bonus Episode. You should see it now. 
I don't know about you guys, but I love a good front office fuck up story. And the case of the late 90s Denver Nuggets is exactly that. Two years after they trade Abdul Roof, they go 11 and 71. It's one of the worst seasons in NBA history, a complete disaster. Much of it can be pinned back to one day in 1996, which I will explain in that bonus episode. So I hope you guys check that out. I hope you enjoy it all and learn something new while you listen. That is all I got. Let's get into the interview now. Forgotten Seasons with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf begins right now. Mahmoud, what is up? How you doing today, man? I won't complain. Just, hey, uh, staying busy. How about yourself? Hey, I mean, I'm talking to you. I know you're in the midst of a crazy press tour for your upcoming documentary, Stan. So we'll start there. By the time this comes out, uh, Stan will already have premiered on Showtime. I got the chance to see it. It's fantastic. I'm going to pitch it to you for people that are hearing about this for the first time. What is Stand and what is it the story of? Well, uh, Stand is a story of uh, generally my life, but my life is, um, you know, faith, resilience. Uh, Some may say encourages. It's dealing with uh, um, how you navigate through uh, health issues, you know, Tourette syndrome. you know, uh, being miseducated and how I eventually evolved out of that, growing up in a single family, growing up in the ghetto, surrounded by all what the ghetto uh, uh, provides us with in terms of prostitution, drug addictions, you know, all of that. Uh, the, 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 the social political position that I took in Denver, uh, the HBO interview, the things that pretty much uh, ended my career. So that and then some more. Like I said, fantastic documentary. Uh, available now on Showtime. Go watch it. So for today's purposes, right, you were on all the smoke. I got the chance to be there. Uh, obviously, people can can watch the documentary. I want to hit on some things from your career that maybe weren't touched on in the documentary and that you're not hearing everywhere. Mm-hmm. To start, I, I want to start with your rookie year. You go third in the 1990 draft. You're one of the greatest college players of all time. You basically walk into LSU averaging 30 points. You are on the same team as Shaquille O'Neal yet overshadow one of the biggest humans ever. And you arrive in Denver in 1990, third overall pick. The Nuggets, for the nine years before you got there, were a steady playoff team led by Alex English, Fat Lever, Doug Moe was the coach. Steady franchise. But the Nuggets that you walk into in 1990 are not those Nuggets from the 80s. Can you paint a picture from your POV of the Nuggets team that you walked into your rookie season? I mean, I appreciate you saying that, um, you know, I was drafted by, by Doug Moe and he wanted to make me the guy. Getting there, they fired him and they brought in Paul West. Paul West had came in with the idea uh, of wanting to be the first coach to score 200 games, I mean, 200 points in a game. Not necessarily, he didn't say win, but 200 points. And uh, it was just an abysmal couple of years getting booed out of, you know, the arena. Um, so it was very tough, you know, coming from LSU and, and coming into that environment. And also I came in out of shape, um, which didn't help at all. But um, it was a tough time. It was a tough time uh, to play in Denver at that, at, at that moment. I mean, fans would come in. I mean, other teams would come in and they would <laughs> they would cheer them on way more than they would cheer us on. And then we didn't have an airplane, and you have to go to the baggage claim, get your bags. You got you to gotta check in, like, super early. 
uh, be at the airport at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And they were smoking on the plane during then, right? It was, man, it was, you started to, coming out of college and, and experiencing that, you're like, man, do I really want to do this? <laughs> you know? But it was, it was tough. We got through it. So you touched on Paul Westhead a little bit, but I, I want to just kind of give the the listeners like a, a, a full idea of what exactly was going on. Cause you, it's in the documentary. He has this press conference in the beginning of the season. He says, Hey, listen, I don't know how many points, I don't know how many games we're going to win, but the one thing I can promise you is that we're going to score a lot of points. And you say like, you know, great. Okay. We're in a high octane offense, but it wasn't that. Okay. You mentioned that you, you finished last year, rookie year, 20 and 62. You, he was right. He's not a liar. You did lead the league in points per game scored. You score 120 points per game as a team, but you also find yourself in the history books for being the worst defensive team of all time. You give up 130 points per game. I mean, you mentioned like your your <laughs> mental your, your mental struggles during this time, which, you know, you're overweight, which was because of bad guidance. Uh, maybe you're not playing enough, but like that just compounded on the fact that you're like, what are we? Is it sort of like, what are we even doing here? Is that what you're thinking? You're, you're right. But but also, man, uh, Paul Westhead had a philosophy. I heard him say one time, and I get it. There's a there's a balance between motivating people and being ridiculous. He said, the more you run, the faster you get. No, the more you run, the slower you get. And so he he had a he had a philosophy, even when the team was on the other end, he's and they were already set up defensively, take the ball out and push it down their throats. Mm -hmm. Right. And so a lot of guys were just we were just wore out during the season. Uh, it was just too much, which is also why. Uh, most, I mean, yeah, we may have led the, the league in scoring, but it was an abysmal record. And teams used to beat us by more than what we were, you know, we were scoring. So, um, yeah, it was just it was tough, man. His his. Uh, um, his philosophy, I don't think just fit with the guys that we had on that team at the time so that happens your first two years aren't great but then in year three it flips you win most improved player uh what kind of clicks in your mind going from year two to year three i know dan issel who comes in at coach a hall of famer in his own right was uh was a big a big influence on that but what clicks going from year two to year three that allows you to break out and win most improved player i was in um, I was in Denver. I walked into a grocery store and I pick up a magazine and I, I, I thumbed through it and I saw my, the Denver Nuggets and it was a write-up on me, a little brief write-up saying that I was a bust. And that's really what clicked for me. You know, I've been training all of this time and I said, you know what, I'm not going out like that. And so I started calling people to fly in I started getting on the staff master for about an hour. I started changing my diet. Um, and I would fly more than more than one guy, about two or three guys in the whole time. And I just, for me, is I didn't want that to be my legacy uh, at all. And that's the thing that clicked for me. Because um, no one wants to be called the bust. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, I can't remember the other thing you just asked me. Uh, you said something else that I wanted to respond to. Dan Issel. Dan Issel came in. Yeah, Dan Issel came in. And we were in the locker room. And he said, look, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the slate is clean. 
is, is yours to lose. And I was still kind of skeptical because you hear, I just went through, man, two years of, uh, of just, when I say it was brutal, it was brutal. It got to the point that it was personal because I remember one time being on the bench and it was the last game of the season. My mother came to that game and Paul West said it sat. You didn't get into the whole game. And he kneeled by me and he looked at me. He looked at the player next to me. He looked at me, looked at the player next to me. He looked at me and he pointed to the other player while looking at me saying, go in. <laughs> and I chuckled. And I said to him while looking out on the, uh, at the court, because I wasn't going to make a scene. And I just giggled because at that time, I started to change the dynamic uh, of, of, of how I was playing to the point where fans began to say, put Raul Finn, put Raul Finn. And I had a short window. If I would make two or three, he would either leave me in or take me out. And so uh, he started taking me out when I make two or three, and fans started noticing that. And I remember when he did that, I, I was looking out, and I said, <laughs> I giggled, and I said, that's okay. I said, you know, I'll have the last laugh when it's all said and done. I'll be here when you long gone. And he, you could just see if 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 he was on a if he was a pot of water on a stove, boy, you could see the the the, the, the fumes is coming. And uh, that's what happened that next year, that summer, they fired him. They brought in Dan Issel. Dan Issel said the slate is clean. I was still kind of hesitant if he was going to keep his word, but he did. And that's the year that I ended up, I think, averaging nineteen or so, six assists, yeah. whatever it was. And got the most improved. Mm -hmm. Last thing I want to ask you about the 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 bad stretch is is Michael Adams, a guy that you look back at the history books, and you know he he becomes the third player in history to average twenty six points a game and ten assists per game, and those other two players are Oscar Robertson and Tiny Archibald. And again, no disrespect to Michael Adams, he had a green light, but does that kind of compound yeah. even more when you're sitting on the bench and you see a guy who's kind of playing like you were allowed to in college, like green light, do whatever you want. And for some players, that's good. Yeah. For some players, maybe not. What was your perspective of that? I mean, I didn't like it. Uh, and, 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 and a correction, Michael, Michael Adams didn't have a green light. He had a fluorescent light. <laughs> you know, he, could, he could shoot it pretty much when he wanted it. But it got to the point where we would be in practice sometimes, and I started feeling some kind of way, especially when I started getting in shape. And we were in Dallas, and that's another thing that clicked because when people start talking as if though because they're not playing you, right, sometimes when you're not getting played, there's this notion that players think that you don't have it and you lost it because they're trying to play you like a robot. And I remember being in Dallas and he started talking, right? And I felt, I felt slight. I felt insulted. Don't, don't get it twisted because they're not playing me. They think that I ain't got it. And so I started going at him in practice. And I'm not a guy that talk. But as I'm going at him, I'm running off at the mouth. I said, man, you can't, you can't guard me. You know, don't, don't ever think that you can guard me. And then I'm, I, I said, and then I'm pointing at them because, you know, they, they're instigating this stuff. And I look at the coaches and I said, and don't let them get you in trouble. You know, I mean, because I know what I'm capable of. And um, systems matter. Uh, having the light to where you don't have to look over your shoulder matters. Well, all right. So I promised that was the last question I was going to ask about the first few years. It gets better temporarily in Denver. 93-94, uh, 
you make the playoffs for the first time, number eight seed, uh, you got a new new logo, new jerseys. Things are looking up in Denver. Eight seed in the playoffs. You got the 63 win, one seed Sonics. You go down 2-0 in the first round, best of five. And, you know, statistically, that means you're going to lose. And even more so, you're the eight seed going up on, against the one seed. So you're definitely going to lose, right? Uh, you don't. You actually win the next three games. You become the first eight seed to beat a number one seed in the playoffs. Uh, what are your What are your best memories from from that five game series against Seattle? Uh, exactly what you said. People counting us out and not thinking that we're going to have a chance. I think we ended up losing the first couple or so, mm-hmm. and then we just went on. We went on a tear um, and 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 upset them. I, I think you said what well, the first eight seed to, to be the first seed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the thing I do remember is this man, and I and I feel, I still feel when I look back, it was a sign of immaturity. But my mind was just where it was at the time. I had been to Hodge the previous year, and I wanted to go to Hodge the second year in a row, and so I was I wasn't like, I guess I wasn't throwing the game, but my heart wasn't in it, mm. and because I was like, man, I want to go back to Mecca. You know, I want to I want to experience that one more time because I began to read and learning more. And and I knew that if I didn't go that year. Because the way it goes, it comes close every year. It'll be a long time before I had that opportunity again. So I was like. Secretly, man, I was pissed off when we won, (laughs) you know, if no, no, if you're looking at the video, man, I'm like, hey, good game, good game. But in my mind, I'm like, damn. Dikembe's, Dikembe, Dikembe's crying on the court in happiness. Right. And I'm like, not now we want to play. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now we want to come back. But afterwards, I got I got mad at myself. I said, because, you know, I'm looking at the Quran and there's a verse where Allah says, which of the favors of your Lord will you deny? And mm-hmm. so he gives us these abilities. And here it is. You know, I should I should try to maximize all of what he's given me. And I'm not doing that. And and I felt bad about that. Then I said, you know what, let me come on and, and, and try to just, you know, pick it up. But mm. I remember that out of everything, I remember that feeling of wanting to go to Hodge and then feeling regret after the fact that I didn't really put everything I had into it. But it's good that we won, you know, as a result of it. I mean, great that you won. And a reminder for us as fans, we have no idea what is going through players' minds <laughs> in the time. So just enjoy the game. Uh all right, That's so right. 90, right. 94, you end up losing to Utah in, in seven uh, in round two, yeah. but 94, first taste of the playoffs. 94, you get back again, you lose. And then 95, 96, which ultimately ends up being your your last season in Denver, uh, probably your best statistical year uh, when, you, when you were playing. I think what strikes me when you go back and look at that team is that that was like, you had a lot of talent on that team. It was yourself. Oh, cool. It was Dikembe. It was a second year Jalen Rose, a rookie Antonio McDice, Dale Ellis, uh, we hear, and I think today we're kind of used to teams kind of forming in one season and becoming a contender. It's what we've been normalized to with super teams and free agency and trades. But I think, you know, you need two, three, four years to to play together to really develop and develop that chemistry. Uh, when you think back on that 95, 96 team, do you think if that team had more time together? Uh, and was able to develop it, it would have been a perennial playoff contender and maybe even a contender in the West? No question. No question. Like you just said, we had talent, man. Dale Ellis, Dale Ellis could flat out shoot the ball. Uh, you know, Dikembe was a force underneath. You know, McDice was improving every year. He could shoot it. He can he can play down down low, uh, block shots. 
Uh, we had Brian Stiff, tough as nails. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, great role players at the same time. Reggie Williams. Uh, no question, man. We and, and that's the thing that upset me after what happened, that they broke us up with all the potential that we had uh, because of that that one, you know, that that one decision. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and it was a great year. I mean, it started off really great for us and for myself, and I mean, definitely for myself as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and then it just it went south and, and never bounced back. Yeah, I mean, my my favorite part of your uh, of the season for you is that when you look at the guards that made the Western Conference All Star team this this season '96, it was Gary Payton, John Stockton, and Jason Kidd. When you go back mm-hmm. and look at your games against Gary Payton, John Stockton, and Jason Kidd, you hang 51 on Stockton, you hang 38 on Kidd, and you hang or 39 on Kidd, sorry, and then 28 on Payton. Is there like a heightened sense of, you know, people think that these are the all-stars, but I I think it's that. I mean, I think I know what you're going to say in that every game is maybe the same, but is there a little chip on your shoulder? Like, Hey, I'm doing this against them. Like this, like, this is me. Well, let me just say this. Uh, Every game, it sounds good in theory. Generally speaking, when you come out, your, your mindset is to, be dominant. That's your intentions. It doesn't always work out that way. Your mindset is to be dominant every time you step on the floor. You want to be the best one out there. However, we're human. When you know that you're playing against a Michael Jordan, a Gary Payton, and they've got they've got that label behind them, you can't help it. It automatically, you know, lifts the bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, because they're not considered normal dudes. And and uh I was at the I was at the stage, man, too, a part of it because systems matter. You know, I'd gotten in great shape. You know, my win was different. My 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 explosion, my speed increased. But also an important factor was they left me alone. Right? They weren't trying to police me as much. And that makes a difference when you got a guy that can get it off the dribble, he can come off screens, he can come off you know, pick and rolls and, and, and get his own shot. And sometimes the worst thing a coach can do or anybody can do is put you, you know, put you in handcuffs, which oftentimes happens a lot. And so there were periods in Denver when they just, hey, they didn't have the handcuffs on. You know what I mean? And that that's when it's like it's a whole nother ball game. I just wish that they would do it all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but 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 it didn't happen because the the the, yeah, the, the when we played, and as, as opposed to now, mostly everything, no matter if the big man was great or not great, things going through the big man. Right. Right. You 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 running the system through that nowadays. Shoot, man, if you got a two guard, he's the dude. You going through the two guard. If you got Jordan, you going through Jordan. If you, and it was just a different league back then. Hmm. So, w- one thing that I really learned from the documentary, and that I'd love for you to speak on, is just your you know, consistent throughout your life, your battle with Tourette syndrome, you, know, you were diagnosed at 17 years old, but you dealt with it your whole life. And when you go back and watch some of those games where you're scoring 30 or scoring 50, it's almost like the defender isn't there. And, and what you talked about in the documentary is that uh, even when you're in an open gym, when it's one on zero for you and you're in practice, 
you're going against Tourette syndrome and Tourette syndrome is not going to let you leave the gym until not, you don't make 10, but you make 10 perfectly. So when I go back and watch those, it really is like there is nobody in front of you and you are just hitting combos and rising and firing. Can you just speak on, you know, dealing with Tourette syndrome, but also on the flip side, how Tourette syndrome molded you into one of the best scorers and shooters ever? So it wasn't just me with Tourette syndrome. It was me with two, three invisible people in front of me, hand in the face, putting the body on me, the results. That made it, but even the 10 shots, 10 shots wasn't just 10. It was like afterwards, about an hour and a half, two hours. Without Tourette syndrome, I wouldn't be the player that I became. Mm. I bathed the hours. But it made me come back and said, no, I got to do it this way. It's got to sound and look this way. If it doesn't, I have to stay out here because if you leave before finishing, then, then I'm gonna make your day miserable. I'm a, I'm I'm gonna hype these these ticks, you know. And and you, you couldn't leave without feeling like you've you could you could you couldn't leave without feeling like you perfected that. And uh, and so it you know the, the consistency the, the precision it, it wasn't enough just to make the shot. It was also how you made it. Like if it said to you, no, it's got to be swishes, they got to be swishes. All of them. Mm. If, if it had to go off the glass and, and, and go in from different angles, it had to go off the glass and go all swish, right? It had to hit the rim and come back to you each time, right? And it had to be every time it had to come back to you or you, you have to do it again. So this is, it took you to the level of not just being happy with making them, but precision shooting. Even with the dribbles, you you know, if you mess up, you got to do it again, over and over again. If you did with the right, you had to do it with the left. So definitely, man, definitely. Uh, I wouldn't, I would have never been the player that I became without it, for sure. I mean, it's just incredible. And like I said, you you go back and you watch and it, it it's clear that, you know, that's that's a different level of attention to detail and focus. So I'll be running those highlights for the fans so they can see for themselves, but it's pretty much something like we've never seen before. So kind of, kind of wrapping up this season, uh, March of 96, uh, there's a radio call into a Denver sports station and they say, Hey, you know, I noticed this, this Mahmoud guy is not standing for the national anthem. Uh, and just like that, it's like a fuse is lit, you know, a match is dropped on gas, uh, becomes the biggest story in sports that Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is, you know, sitting or refusing to stand for the national anthem. But what you, explaining the doc and, and how it how it went down is that this wasn't a an instant thing you had been sitting for quite some time uh can you just the best that you can kind of talk us through the timetable of when you decided not to stand why you did that and then when you ultimately got suspended from the nuggets and your time in denver was over yeah when i became a muslim uh i began to uh we had ramadan that came around i had to read uh, I didn't. I thought it was obligatory, but it was highly recommended to read the whole Quran during that month. I ended up reading Quran. In the process of reading it, I'm coming across a lot of verses in the history of of, of, of our prophet about resistance and revolting and standing up for justice and just love and all of these things. As you said, the God noticed. He came to me and he said, "Hey, somebody want to somebody want to." Uh, he said, somebody want to uh, uh, ask you about, you know, they notice you haven't stand. And, and mind you, it was like four months or so previous year, I haven't been doing it. Mm -hmm. And 
then all of a sudden he uh, uh, he come ask me that question. The next day I come to the gym. It's 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 uh, it's um, what do you call it? Uh, journalists are like flooded. It's like a uh, uh, oh my goodness, flooded. They're asking me questions. I'm thinking they're in there for the Shack Show, and they ended up. Yeah, you know, because because still, like when Michael Jordan would come to town, there would be a whole bunch of journalists that day want to interview Michael. And Shaq was a big thing. And they sit me down, and that's when they hit me with the question. I'm like, oh, in my head, like, oh, this is real. And so I just spoke my conscience. And next thing you know, I come back that night uh, out to play them, and that's when Jim Dillon said, hey, man, Bernie wants to see you. Uh, in his office, I went down and he said, man, the NBA called. They're going to suspend you and fine you if you don't stand. What do you say? I said, I'm not going to do it. That's when he got on the – he said, well, there's two people from the NBA who want to talk to you. They got on the phone. They, they spoke with me. They shared their ideas and stories in this context. I said, that story doesn't apply to me, right? So I said, I'm not going to stand. And that's when they – I'm thinking – like I said before, man, there's going to be an act of legislation. They're going to have to go through a bureaucratic process. It's going to take days. I've never been fined before in my life, never been suspended. And he said, no, the fine starts today. I said, what? And so I said, well, can I go and uh, just support the team in the stands? He said, no, they don't want you on the premise. I said, no problem. That's when I go down, tell the teammate, the ones that were there, not outside shooting. And before you know, like by the time I got home, it was global. <laughs> That fast, yeah, and that's what did it. So, just uh, one or two more questions. I mean, uh, so this happens pretty much days after the '96 season. You're traded to Sacramento. Uh, you spend a few years there, then you go overseas, and then you're back for Vancouver, and then that's it. Uh, you know, I think mm -hmm. we tread. We, we kind of use this word lightly today, blackballed uh, for certain players. But I mean, there's uh, no denying yeah. you. you you, you were blackballed from the NBA. The NBA did not want Mahmoud Abdul-Roof uh, in the NBA. So as this is all going down, this four or five-year process, uh, I can only imagine what's going on through your head. Uh, was there like a dominant emotion at the time? Was it anger? Was it sadness? Was it questioning? Uh, how are you just kind of comprehending everything that's going down in this three, four, five-year window? Man, a lot was going through my mind. Uh, initially, I didn't want to jump to the the because you said a lot of things are used loosely, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't want to jump to the the black ball uh, uh, reason. Um, it's just like it's just like we live in a world that's very racist, right? We, nobody can deny that. And even sometimes decisions we make so ingrained in us, we don't realize sometimes just things that we're doing are racist or, or racial reasons. But not everything that happens to us, a white guy does it, something does, is labeled racist, right? But we're quick to do just, oh, why are you racist? And so sometimes with, if something don't happen like like you like it in the NBA, we're quick to want to say, oh, you blackball me, right? Mm -hmm. But after I started looking at it, I'm like, you know what, man, I'm starting to pay attention to patterns and I start my minutes decrease. And then, you know, a lot of times journalists would come to me, especially at that time, because I'm still like in my prime. I'm just coming off a season, putting numbers up right before being mm -hmm. traded. And they were like, why, why aren't you playing? Why aren't you playing? It's like, no, hardly no journalists would ask me questions that year. Then I would hear coaches, 
right? People will come back and tell me, yeah, man, Tom Janovich and other coaches, like, man, why aren't they playing this guy? You know, we set up our defenses to, to guard against him, X, Y, and Z. And then they come out with this uh this this special on TV about the top free throw shooters in the NBA. I'm still, and they don't show me no one time. I'm like, oh, oh. you know, it sounds like this sounds like there's collusion going on here. And uh that's when I started realizing I said, you know what, man, this is uh it's definitely it's this there's a network, because there's always a network. And then when my agent at the time, he had called Phoenix Suns, Coangelo was in there and of Phoenix Sun. And before he can finish the statement, right, he said, hey, my mood is, you know, on the, we're not interested. And it has nothing to do with his basketball league. I'm like, man, I wish I'd have had that, like, <laughs> you know, that recorded yeah. on stage. Oh, man. And and another GM, the same thing, like, man, if he you know, would be making da, da, da. But what happened to him has nothing to do with basketball. So it's known. No, the the thing is that no nobody has been willing to to say it publicly, right? And I get it. You know, they're protecting their job. They don't want to lose it. Who who wants to lose? I didn't want to stop playing with the NBA. My voice to be controlled either. Right. You know, and so that's that's how it all kind of uh went down and, and so all of those things were and it was frustrating because you spend mo- you spend the majority of your life, man training and honing your skills to get to this level and just because i say something that you don't like not that it's untrue it's very much true look academics you know uh, top academics in 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 ivy league schools talk about these, these things and and you're gonna you're going to destroy my career as a result of that see that's criminal to me right and uh so it would take and that was a moment man where I was openly bitter I'm still bitter because as long as I think there's injustices and things haven't been been resolved yeah I'm I'm, I'm not going to let that go and I, it's just not about me there are a lot of players for one reason or another that have been excommunicated the prime example when I was in Denver they had a guy named Darnell Mead hmm. Darnell Mead this is how people are used often and this is what a lot of people don't see he got injured. He had like a hair fracture. And that's a serious, I forget what they call it, serious, serious fracture. They ended up, you know, like putting, and what they'll do, they'll put peer pressure on you. They'll yeah. find veterans. They'll find people in the league constantly. Hey, 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 you need to play. You need to play. Come on. Come. Now I'm hurt, man. Leave me alone. Right? And what happens, You'll you'll if you're not strong enough, you'll feel pressured to go out there when you're not ready. But what they did was they ended up, he had to have a rod put in his leg. When he put in his leg, he still wasn't ready. Right when he got on the court and showed that he would play, they cut him and got rid of him. Right? And he should have stayed there because they would have had to keep him on until. Right? But this is kind of the stuff that they do and you learn that. You learn that. Um, you you learn that. You learn that. Um, um, there's a lot of diabolical behavior going on. <laughs> mm. And so it's hard to trust people, man. Yeah, it's hard to trust people. Nasty business. Yeah, uh, for sure. So uh, again, wrapping up, thank you for your time. I think uh, just touching on everything that you said, I think 
you know, this is a story that clearly the NBA does not want to tell. Uh, so it's great that you've been able to project and, and tell exactly what happened. Uh, it's happening on Showtime. Go watch it now. Uh, Mahmoud, I really appreciate your time. Uh, congratulations Thank on you. the doc and uh, be well, my friend. Thank you. Likewise to you. Man, that is a wrap. Forgotten Seasons with Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. Definitely one of my favorite and I think the most important stories that I've told so far on this podcast. If you like that one, be sure to drop a rating and a review. Like I said at the top, I actually dropped a bonus episode piggybacking off of this interview. I broke down the downfall of the Denver Nuggets following Abdul Rauf's exit in 1996. Shortly after he left, they transformed into one of the worst teams in NBA history. Definitely check that one out and let me know what you think of the bonus episode. I'll keep running that. If you guys like it, shoot me a DM on Instagram with your thoughts. I'll be back here in a few weeks. Appreciate all of the love and the support. Until then, peace.